The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast, coming to you after a very interesting Detroit weekend, which started with some concerns over the new circuit being very narrow and very treacherous in places, whether that be with the uh, tightness of the corners or the uh, condition of the concrete and asphalt mixture. Uh, it was a very interesting race in the end and we got a, a dominant Alex Pillow. Uh, that feels like we've said that a lot recently, coming to uh, a big win. I've got J.R. Hildebrand alongside me. J.R., how are you doing? Did you enjoy the Detroit weekend? Yeah, I think I think interesting is probably the right word for it. Just you know, kind of getting a sense of what people's reactions were over the course of the weekend, seeing how that evolved as the weekend progressed, you know, do people, the more time, the more time you have on track after, you know, post pre-race, post-race in terms of the way I think we ended up with, we ended up with a much better race relative to how the practice sessions and everything else had gone. So I'm, I'm happy for that for sure. Um, you know, I think that when you when you really look at the well, one thing I'll say just to start with is Detroit is a great city to host a race. And from everything that I heard from people who were there, I was kind of texting with some friends who were out there as well that the vibe did seem vibrant and the you know the weather was great all weekend to be able to have this race in downtown. So take the track or any of the rest of it, any you know any of the kind of details of how the event goes on away from it to be able to have it downtown as compared to out at Belle Isle. I think that is a big win. Um, and definitely the right, the right sort of direction for this event. Uh, it's an event that gets a lot of support from not only general motors being right there, but, um, just in general, there's a lot of local businesses that are, that are closely connected to the automotive industry. And obviously Penske is, you know, has a longstanding history in Detroit. So, um, his businesses are, are closely affiliated with this event and, and always have been prior to, prior to Penske entertainment owning the series and the, and IMS. So I think it's just as a, as a place for us to hold an event, it's a great spot on the calendar. It's a good event to have you sort of skipping ahead now to the actual, track and kind of the event the event as we saw it you know i guess some some highlights for me or some things that were were wins in terms of how this went were the split pit lane was not an issue at all and was actually pretty cool like i would I, it made me think this would be this would be cool to see at other places um, where you have this kind of tight quarters um you know something for indycar maybe to be thinking about long term with car car counts growing you know certainly at the temporary circuits to be able to get creative and think about doing this type of thing again elsewhere um and that you got to say that the hospitality was top notch and and this is that's actually something they, they mentioned on the broadcast that basically the whole chalet on the pit straight there was from the waste management open you know, so you've got sort of like a PGA style um, open air hospitality, and and that's something that I've frankly been surprised that we haven't seen elevated at more street circuits in particular, but just you know racetracks along the IndyCar schedule. Anyway, it's it's one of the things that you definitely see there becoming a much greater and like growing divide between the sort of peak experience that you can have at a formula one race and the peak experience that you can have at an IndyCar race. So I think there was a couple of things having nothing to do with the actual circuit that the drivers were participating on itself that were, uh, you know, things that just point to, you know, things that maybe we could look, look forward to more at other places down the road that worked well. Um, in terms of the track itself, I guess I would say, I think the, the biggest issue and, and the drivers, I think, would probably agree with this that were there, even those who were most critical of of the place from the beginning. The biggest issue is just the track length. And, you know, I, you and I had, had chatted on, on the pod earlier in the year. I did a little, you know, what would my kind of ideal IndyCar schedule look like for, for the race? So I'll, I'll plug myself so that 
uh, you know, you don't have to, that you can go kind of hunt that down on, on the website. But, you know, when I looked at Detroit, I did, I mean, my, my thought was, I love this race being on the calendar, but if you're going to have it downtown, you almost have to go back to some version of the original F1 cart street circuit, um, both because it's actually a really cool track, but like that was, that was my reason for it, um, in that piece. But in this context, now being here with the event weekend, as we've gone through it, um, with with anywhere near this many cars, there could have been five fewer cars on track and it still would have been, you know, too tight, too short. Nobody's getting a clean lap. I mean, practice was just, I mean, I, th- I bet for a lot of teams, it was totally pointless almost like you're just racking up crash damage. And, and that's kind of it. Like the number of drivers that literally didn't at any point get a clear lap, maybe, in, maybe until qualifying, maybe not until the race um, was, abnormally high uh, we go to a lot of tracks that are tight i mean you and i have talked about nashville seeming a little mickey mouse on the pod you know this definitely has a little bit of that feeling to it when you're watching it just you're kind of thinking man are are we really racing at this and and there's kind of been no evolution of the safety and barriers and and all that stuff and not not that that's from a safety perspective that's not like that's that big of a deal but just the aesthetic of the place it looks it looks like you're driving through a parking lot kind of and that's just never a good look and in my opinion for indycar um it's kind of like if you had it one way or the other if if the if, if you had the entire circuit paved or or something like that then then at least you've got part of the aesthetic is built in and it seems like a purposeful racetrack when you've got five different types of concrete you can tell that it's all been ground down over the last 6 months um and you've got you know just kind of the the typical barriers and and walls and all this kind of stuff you know the 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 corner wall for turn seven that kept getting clipped on the inside you know it's just little stuff like that that's it's a first time event they'll clean some of this stuff up but um it's also just kind of the nature of street circuit racing in IndyCart right now like they all it all everywhere we go sort of abides by the same criteria and it doesn't seem like I, i guess maybe it's a function just of there not being enough quite enough dollars available to make that extra investment to really bring it up to a a kind of new level um but i've i guess i've just found myself thinking that you know even watching st pete earlier in the year um and it's not to compare indycar to f1 necessarily but f1 is doing more street circuits now or or sort of these you know city circuits and it's a it's a whole different ball game and i and i completely get that but i mean like at jetta they've got safer barrier built into some of the you know some of the some of the walls on a street circuit you know so there's it, there's just to me almost because you're now seeing somewhere else there's this more significant change in terms of the quality of these tracks um the fact that indycar the needle really hasn't moved from that perspective. And now you, and you know, we're trying these new places. We've come to Nashville, we've come here, we've added a couple of street circuits that almost have just because of the layouts of the track, almost feel like they've gone kind of the other direction that there's these sections that you're watching, just thinking, Oh my God, this is, this is, this is really tight. I mean, there's regardless of how it races or, or any of that stuff. Um, you know, it's just, a it's a tough kind of nut to crack. I'm sure for IndyCar when you're, when you have the constraints that that we have. So I love the fact that IndyCar still is able to race and put on a good show in much grittier conditions than than F1. I'm by no means suggesting that I wish that IndyCar was running on these like, you know, Miami, Jetta, Singapore style street circuits or or having to do that in order to run street tracks, but um you know, I, I think it's just it's just another race on the calendar that makes that reminds me when you watch it of kind of like, oh, we this hasn't changed that much. Like we're still just kind of coming back to these same types of places with the same type of, um, 
you know, attitude and, and environment for the drivers. So I'm really glad that it raced as well as it did. Um, you know, okay. Yeah. There was guys that got caught out by the fact that it was so tight and, you know, there was some little hiccups here and there, but all in all, you know, once you had everybody in a pack, uh, you know, it was, it was just kind of our, our typical street circuit racing. And we ended up with a winner that was very deserving. And the racing at the front was really good throughout the entire race through, you know, up and down through the top 10. Um, you know, but I, I guess I, I feel like you, you have to think that after this first year event, that while there are some great takeaways, you have to think that it's at least worth trying to figure out, you know, is there somewhere that we can add a third of a mile, a half a mile to this circuit just to just to draw it out because otherwise it becomes a place that you you know what you're going to get every year coming back here, which is exactly what we saw up through race day, which is everybody being kind of frustrated and annoyed by the way that the circuit works, which is just, I think that that all by itself is um, just never, never what you want from, you know, the communication from inside the paddock. Well, Flavor Flav enjoyed it. So if, if, if there's, if there's a barometer of, how good an IndyCar track is. I want it to be that Flavor Flav <laughs> enjoys it. That's what I want my barometer of a new IndyCar track to be. But in all seriousness, I think um, I think you raised some good points. I think the one thing I 100% definitely would have done is split practice into two groups because I don't think that's a yeah, difficult... Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think that's a difficult thing to do. We, we've talked about this on the pod a lot. IndyCar is already really flexible when it comes to rules and being able to to mix things up for different races and, and do different things. It's really good at that. It has been in the past. Um, I just can't understand why you come to the shortest track that, that you're going to run on for the first time at a street circuit where the surface is slippy and things are difficult. You're going to be up against the wall. I just can't understand why you wouldn't split the field into two groups because if you have, if you have every single car on track, you've got two around two seconds between each car which is barely enough to get a lap in, even if everyone is, is like running at full speed for the whole time, which just is not going to happen. It's impossible. So um, just can't understand why you wouldn't have done that just to alleviate the practice because we had more red flags across the first two practice sessions in Detroit than we had across the first six races of the season. So I think that tells you everything you need to know about that anyway. And I think that it's, you know, it's worth mentioning that even if even if that basically meant that per team or per driver your practice time was cut in half i mean even if they literally just took the same amount of time that they currently use for the sessions without adding a full additional session for every other you know teams would have taken that unquestionably over over what they ended up with which was you know like you said just you kind of never i mean watching watching through practice it was kind of painful to watch how many cars were you know, I mean, how, how frequently guys were using the clutch just to not run into a train of cars that was in front of them. I mean, almost comical, you know, sitting in Colton Herta's onboard when he's like three seconds off the pace, you know, it's like, you just can't get a lap. I mean, there's literally not a point throughout the entire session that you get a full clean lap all put together. So yeah, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. McLaughlin did 11 laps. I think it was in the second practice session without having a proper push lap because he had to bail out of every single one so you can only imagine how annoying that must be as a as a driver but also just to just to address the race I think the the element that I've not really seen people talk about that that I really enjoyed about it was the overtaking element and some of the moves that we saw in some just bizarre places that you would have I mean turn nine I would have just totally ruled out as an overtaking spot like before the weekend in fact I think I did when I was like writing about the the preview of the track and where we could expect certain things to happen I think nine was just a like a not going to see anything through there I think one was a similar and and to be fair one did get opened up for the second practice with one layer of tires being removed so it was slightly more open than it had been pre-weekend or or in the first practice so so that did change a, a little bit at least I guess but I, I'm just one of these people who really enjoys like seeing drivers throw dummies and like invent overtaking maneuvers in different places and you saw it through the race if you watch certain drivers you saw the ones who are willing to to make that risk and you know, that goes both ways. That's a a risk in their favor that they overtake someone, but it's also a risk in, you know, against them that they're willing to to put themselves in that position and, and potentially put themselves out of the race. So that kind of risk versus reward is 
one of the reasons why I started watching motorsport as a kid and one of the reasons why I love to see overtaking happen. And and if it takes a a shorter street track with a really mixed surface and, you know, all of this kind of stuff going on to, to make that happen, then I'm I'm all for it. And I totally agree that ideally the track would be a bit longer, especially when you consider the the start, for example, I was so surprised actually that we didn't have more starts called off because the like the the sector leading onto the back straight is just so like tight and short. Uh, I just don't know how the cars are able to like pack up side by side there to to actually get a start in. It was incredible that we actually got so many good starts in. I think it's probably the fact that it was single file helped that, whereas the obviously the double file at the start probably made it a little bit more a little bit more difficult, but. I think definitely adding some length to the track would be ideal. But if it does stay as it is now, I think with a few tweaks and, you know, looking at some of the surfaces that you, that you discussed, maybe tidying up a bit and making it look a bit more like a, a racetrack. And I'd be quite happy to see another race there. And I know some people call that Mickey Mouse. And I guess there are elements of that track that are kind of Mickey Mouse in, in a way. But I also, as I said, I, I just like the kind of racing that it breeds. I know it... I know it does breed some, you know, it, the chances of cautions are higher and it does breed more risk into the race. But I like the fact that the drivers are challenged in this way. And especially when you've got an offset of soft and hard tyre being so much different, you know, with the, the soft tyre going off so much, that almost invents the the overtaking that you need anyway to have that, that offset of, of tyres. But just to see people lobbing it down the inside of turn nine was just, that is like exactly what the kind of thing that I want to see. And I had tweeted earlier in the weekend that just watching one of Joseph's on boards, it just to, to see difficulty is so rare in motorsport now from an onboard or something, because we obviously everything's so precise now. And that's a great thing. Like there's so much joy to take out of watching a, a Max Verstappen qualifying lap, because it's like when you know what to look for, it's otherworldly in terms of how precise and, incredible it is to see a lap come together when when he's driving but also as a someone coming into the sport it looks quite clean it looks quite quite sanitized whereas when you watch Newgarden like soaring at the wheel through the Detroit street course which the fact that it was shorter and narrower and tighter actually I guess added to that and made it look even more impressive you know what what the drivers were able to do I just thought that element of seeing the wheel being sawn at and and it just visibly looked really hard and i and i as i said when i tweeted this out i know f1's hard and i know that there's joy to take in the precision of, of formula one but there's just something really like primal about watching like an, an onboard like that yeah i totally agree with that it's funny we were watching it my wife was sitting there watching practice with me or, or whatever one of the sessions and and she was i think it was a pato on board and and she was just like man that looks that's like he's like really struggling with it and i was kind of sitting there like that's probably about as hooked up as it's gonna ever look around this place like i i thought that actually looked pretty good so just to 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 kind of tack on to that i agree that and i think that you know one of the things that we talk about a lot even as drivers and you know what we what we are asking for from the next indycar is make this even more excessive but in a way that you can that you can push to those limits almost more frequently and more easily you know we talk a lot about you know there's there's obviously a discussion motorsport wide about kind of the role that downforce plays and why why basically why do we have so much downforce what's the not not like that the answer for that absolutely is we shouldn't have as much as we have or something and i think that's dependent on what corner of motorsport you're in. Um, I mean, for formula one, they race at a bunch of tracks where their cornering speeds are supposed to be, or intended to be really high. And that's a big part of how you extract. Like if you're, if you're in a place where it's safe to extract absolute maximum performance and speed out of a race car, then you're going to need a lot of downforce to be able to do that. But it creates for a situation where kind of to your earlier point, you have to know what you're looking for. You have to it, like I, you know, I I watch F one every weekend. It's it's almost like you, if you just watched the laps or you just were watching the onboards, it's it's amazing how fast it is. And when you see them at places like Monaco, like Max's third sector at Monaco, okay, it's really impressive. But even then, I mean, I ended up there was there was some data floating around online 
about his final sector and people kind of talking about like what made his final sector so fast. And it's kind of, and as a driver, I know exactly what to look for when I see that data. And most people were actually wrong. Most fans were wrong about where the time came. I mean, everybody was so amazed at this, you know, section time. And it's kind of like, well, you guys actually are, are not even breaking down where that came from here. You know, like he actually was just breaking later and carrying more speed into the corner everywhere. And that's that's how the section time it's not because he was super close to the barriers at exit everywhere. Like that's not what happened. Um, the uh, and so I guess I say that just as a as an example of like you could you can watch a Max Verstappen onboard and besides the sheer speed of it not really have not walk away with any particular idea of what made it so incredible, like, or what made him faster than the next guy in terms of what's going on. That's, that's probably my biggest gripe with formula one right now, that it's actually so fast that it's almost impossible until something goes horribly wrong. It's impossible. Like I feel bad for Charles Leclerc because it's like, it's either, he's either totally hooked up or he's totally not. And so you start to get this, you, you build up this reputation of, you know, overstepping that line. And it's kind of like, well, I, I don't think we're quite appreciating how fine that line is in F1 right now. Like the commitment required to be able to extract the maximum out of the car. Cause it is just like a slot car on rails around the racetrack. You watch an Indy car, particularly at places like this. And it's just the opposite, right? Like at least the fact that this is not easy to do. It's like that, like just the takeaway, extracting maximum performance take away sticking it on the pole like the difficulty of doing those things i think i think like you said you you watch the onboard in practice and it's apparent that just literally like getting the car around the racetrack physically driving the car for a lap is not an easy thing like that it it sort of dissuades i think the average fan from from thinking oh i could do that you know um which is not so much the case in a lot of the rest of racing right now and, and even other places that IndyCar goes, um, you know, the old, you know, watching a qualifying lap at Indianapolis, I think looks pretty easy from the outside to a lot of people, but here at Detroit, um, you know, it, it does really put that difference kind of on steroids and, uh, you know, as, as drivers, we're actually just asking for even more of that. Um, you know, if you imagine, if you were watching any of the onboards this weekend, Imagine even less downforce, even more horsepower, but maybe a little more tire to be able to give you something that you can confidently lean into and lean against. Just make that kind of already differentiated experience even more excessive. So uh, in terms of what IndyCar is and what makes it different, the fact that we go to these types of tracks, to your point that you see this kind of, you know, much, much more kind of raw product I think is is ultimately a good thing and that's kind of where where I sit there and I say all right I'm not mad about a lot of the corners being tricky I'm not mad about it being as tight as it is through certain sections but I think as a complete thing you know when you do have some other some other you know areas or or tracks or a series or whatever to kind of compare it to now you know, can we can we bring the total level of this up a little bit so that we can still showcase the product, but do it in a way that there aren't all of these caveats to like what makes it what makes it unique and and kind of worthwhile to get into. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, JR, instead of uh, carrying on with this talk about the ideology of motorsport, we should probably get into the race a little bit and uh, address Alex Pillow and his stunning performance over the course of the race. He's now 51 points clear in the championship after taking pole position and 
winning from there. So um, I guess the obvious question at this point to most people is how is he going to be stopped? Because to have a, 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 a points lead that is as big as a race win after seven races feels like um, at least half of the story feels like he's going to be tough to beat. And then you add the other half of the story where he's not finished outside of the top 10 this year. He's qualifying on average 3.57. He, he just looks pretty... Uh, pretty tough to beat at the moment um every, every kind of measurable stat you kind of go into in and out laps even he's in the top 10 for both of those as well um it's just difficult to see where that challenge is going to come from and if you look at the points i guess we should go as far down as maybe kirkwood in in 12th he's 132 points back i think so um i guess where are you looking at for for the cutoff there and and who who looks like the, the person most likely to be able to to give Palau a season because at the moment he looks pretty <laughs> looks pretty alone up there, doesn't he? Yeah, I just as a as a little sidebar, when we were at Indianapolis, maybe prior to recording or, or something, it, I was trying to think of when this happened. It might have been after we talked to Alex, so maybe he was like on his way out. But I bumped into another driver who I'll who I'll leave their identity uh, nameless and nameless Name and, and faceless. <laughs> But um, I will say it was just just for the sake of credibility. It was a former act, current an active driver, but a former champ and Indy 500 winner. So that that'll narrow it down at least a little bit for you. Um, who sort of unsolicited just said he basically was like this guy, you know, like what about this guy? And I was kind of like, yeah, he's pretty, you know, pretty impressive and you know, pretty pretty crazy run and you know to beat the other Ganassi guys and whatever and and. Just without without hesitation, uh, this driver that I was talking to just said, "He's just got no weaknesses." Like I, it, like it, in in this tone of admiration, like it, it was the first time that I've heard from an, I heard another driver talk about somebody who's not a teammate. Not they've got no reason to be complimentary towards somebody like this, and and almost in a way that was that was kind of like. He's got something that I even don't know that I have, you know, like I, I feel like I'm going to have a hard time standing up to this challenge um, that I think just the fact that that occurred in any environment uh, tells you a lot of what you need to know about um, how good Alex really is, uh, that he's getting that type of he, he there's that type of view of him from other drivers that he's racing against. Um I don't, in terms of who else is, and I'll just say, I'm, it's so cool to see him get a win at a place like this because it, it also, it goes to show you that at, at tracks like this, it's not necessarily the guys that are wild and seem, seem like it's almost the opposite, you know, to see, to see Alex and Will Power and Scott Dixon be the guys who are running up front for so much of this event and in the mix for so much of this event, Felix and, and obviously Pato was up there. He was kind of the, you know, the, the, the counter to this argument, I guess, that he was running up front for as long as he was. We know, although we know that he can do this at these types of places, just because his skill level is so high. Um, you saw a lot of the drivers who you typically think of as guys who are smoother and a little more slow-handed and precise in terms of what they do with the race car. Those were the drivers that, you know, over the course of the event and and certainly over the course of the race were the ones that sort of rose to the top and were conti- continued to be at the front to hold station up at the front of the pack that it's almost like when the track is so dynamic and so, uh, you know, bumpy and, and, and changing so quickly that, the guys that are a little bit smoother that can kind of keep their hands steady and not be reacting immensely to everything that's going on. were the ones that, that really ended up finding that consistent pace over the course of the race. So um, I thought that was cool to cool to see Alex, you know, Alex is, we talk so much about how he's not the most, um, you know, kind of fiery or flamboyant driver when you see his in, see his onboards, and so the fact that he was the one that really did dominate this race, like there was never a point. There were some times when you know, maybe there was some question about how the tire strategy between he and Will was going to play out, and and Will deserves you know some major credit for the race that he ran here, but um, it just never really seemed like 
there was a doubt that Alex was going to end up at the front of this thing and and was going to get away with it after you know a number of defenses on on restarts and all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, when you when to to answer your question about the championship, it's really hard to say. I mean, you look at. I don't. I don't think that it's going to end up being somebody who's currently outside, probably the top seven. I would guess, and and I don't say that necessarily. I'm not. Look, I don't have the. I don't have the uh, rundown in front of me right now, but I think I think it's just because that's kind of where the group of drivers who have the potential to be good enough and consistent enough weekend to weekend sit right now. You're basically talking about Alex's teammates. In Scott Dixon and Marcus Erickson, you know, they've both shown enough pace that if they have some weekends go right and Alex has some weekends go wrong or they really find something that they can, you know, they can be in the hunt here. Um, you've got the three Penske guys that are kind of in the same boat that they can, any any of those three guys can get on a run and uh, start making their way forward. And, um, you know, you've got Pato and... Alexander Rossi, who have both shown enough speed and enough consistency, I think that um, they could potentially be in the mix. But it's 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 starting to feel more so. I feel like than in years past, it's starting to feel like you're gonna need we're gonna need to see one of those drivers start to turn the table here on Alex Pillow and start to beat him very consistently um, for any of that to happen. Because even like Alex's championship year. Him having a bad weekend or having something go wrong, even down the stretch, just doesn't seem like that phases him or his group much. Like you've got to actually, I think somebody's going to actually have to go out and beat him. You're going to have to rely on him having some mechanical problems as well, really, to for, for him to be 51 points ahead already. It's like, I mean, it's possible, but it's very unlikely that like at some point he's going to need to have some problems for, for that sort of situation to change. And I think it, it's just so interesting... I think you've perfectly teed this up by telling us your story about the driver who said he's got no weaknesses because when I look at the when I look at the immediate contenders, I don't want to get too deep into this now because, you know, we want to get back to, to looking at the race. But I think with Marcus, you know, he's had a, a really consistent season, um, obviously won the the first race of the year as well. But you just wonder if he's if he's a person who can excel to the level in races that he's going to be able to overturn a 51 point advantage over Alex without him having any problems. Like can Marcus go and win another two or three races in the season? It's a big question. He might be able to, but it's a big question to, to ask. I think if you look at Joseph, you know, we know he's won two races already and it's very likely he can go on and win, you know, even three more if, if uh, the season goes well. But again, same as last year, the, the little niggly bits that seem to unwind his races are, are still there and he's struggling to, to overcome those and then if you look at Scott I mean for for Dixon the big thing for him is he's qualifying nearly seven places better on average every race compared to last year which is just I mean we've talked about this with Dixon before but he just finds a way to improve something every year which is you know seems stupid to say about a six-time champion who is is quite clearly one of the best drivers in the series but he still goes and finds new ways to to be better so if he continues to qualify where he does is every chance he can rip off two or three wins and he's he's felt you know we've heard him after a few races say that he felt like he had a car that could win the race and things just hadn't quite hooked up for him in, in the way that he needed them to so I think even just looking at those guys they all have certain question marks over about whether they have what they need either the consistency or that peak performance to overturn Pelot so I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating end to the season anyway. So it's been a bit of a, speaking of somebody who I feel like we would have, we might have thought, or, or you might think is in this conversation, but ultimately just in the championship standings isn't right now is, is Roman Grosjean. He's been so totally in the mix for so many races out of the season, but he's sitting 11th in the championship because he's had, you know, a number of these races just go, go sideways on him basically. Um, you know, what are you taking away from this weekend, not only just with him, but kind of Andretti on the whole here? Where do you feel like they stand? It seems, I guess my my brief opinion here is that it seems clear that they've made a step from last year, but we just kind of haven't seen for any of their cars it completely coming together on a consistent basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kirkwood and Herter are quite similar in a way, aren't they? We've seen some, some inconsistency in a, a few errors from those guys, although Kirkwood has... 
seem to have that next level of performance that Colton's really struggled with this year. I think moving on to Roman, I think, you know, you look at his his year, I think if you give him the St. Pete win that he was taken out of by Scott McLaughlin and you give him an eighth place eighth place finish here in Detroit, he's fourth in the standings. Whereas if you look at where he is actually now, he's 128 points behind Alex Pillow. So it's a massive gap and you can see why he was so angry after he got out of the car after his suspension failed in the Detroit race. He was, it felt like forever, didn't it? He was sat kind of next to the track and just kind of, he sat down for a bit, he was holding his head and he was shaking his fists and was just, just couldn't get his head around the fact that he was out of that race. And I think that's perfectly reflective of his year. We mentioned St. Pete, obviously Texas, that was his fault, but uh, I guess the whole dirty air thing, um, you can maybe give him a little bit of, um, I don't want to say give him a pass, but you can kind of feel a little bit sorry for him in the, in the way that that crash happened. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the the 500 was, you know, his race was already over at that point. He'd been harpooned by Colton Herto, but again, crashed out. So uh, I guess there's there's a good mix of things to to consider with him. I think he's he has potentially taken himself out of a couple of results, but he's also had quite a few results taken away from him without his, you know, without it being his fault. Indy GP as well was the one I forgot to mention where he had traffic and qualifying and was 18th and, and managed to turn that into into 11th. Um, and then obviously the two second places at, at Long Beach and Barber. But yeah, I think it's been a, a really interesting season from him. And it's, it's I, I thought um, after the race, I read Penske's uh, post-race uh, press release and um, Joseph Newgarden. I think, I mean, I don't think I'm out of uh, out of my mind to kind of uh, point this out, but I think there's definitely some uh, some afters there because obviously Joseph um, had that kind of incident with Roman where he pushed him into the wall in in Nashville last year. I don't think it was any retribution from from jo- from Joseph. Um, sorry, from Roman in in the turn three incident that we saw in Detroit where Roman kind of barged into to Joseph a little bit. I don't think Roman was thinking about Nashville in that, but there's definitely like a bit of a theme kind of uh, developing here. But uh, in his uh, post-race press release, uh, Joseph's uh, quote says, um, let me find this now. It got a little rough out there at times and we were on the receiving end of it, but you'll have that on a street course. That stuff always comes back on you. And that felt like a bit of a kind of karma's going to get you back, Roman, like you've bunched into me and then now your, your suspension's failed kind of thing. Um, so I, I felt that was interesting. And Scott McLaughlin as well, Joseph's teammate, was also quite outspoken about how he felt Roman hadn't left him enough room in the the turn one incident that they had as well. Um, it's, just an, it's just fascinating to see. I think sometimes we can maybe judge Roman based on his reputation instead of his actions. And sometimes it's fair to judge him on his actions because sometimes he makes mistakes. He's an over-aggressive racer. He does things that pisses people off. Like that's that's his MO as a driver. Like that's just what he's always going to do. Um, but I think that sometimes things can happen where we sometimes maybe jump to a conclusion. If you're talking about this season in the context of, let's say this was Scott Dixon's season we were talking about, I think we'd be a lot more sympathetic to what had happened to to Scott than people have been in terms of what's happened to Roman. That's that's just my take. Um, I, I think it's fair personally. I'm sure some people will will disagree, but I think we've also seen some maybe even a little bit of character character development from from Roman. I mean, especially generally since his crash, he's obviously changed as a person a lot. But I think even this year, you know, we've seen a lot of um, you know Michael Andretti said that he'd been working on him with his like his emotions and stuff, trying to to keep those in check. And Roman was just flat out like, I'm not going to change. Like. <laughs> I'm, I'm this year's old now. I'm not going to change like how I act. Like this is just, this is a thing now, but he's also acknowledged what he's been like as a teammate in the past. Um, you know, talking about the kind of cutthroat nature of coming up in Europe, what it means to basically end other people's careers. Like if you're a teammate, then it's like kill or be killed basically, isn't it? Like you graduate to the next level or, or, or the other guy does and one of you loses out. Like that's just how it is. Um, but he's acknowledged that he's been a bad teammate in the past and that he wants to be more conducive in a more conducive working environment where he actually helps people as opposed to being, you know, a problem within the team and, and stuff like that. I think we've just seen, you know, quite a lot happen this year and it's it's a really interesting story to kind of kind of look at all these all these things. Um maybe they when you add them all together, they maybe add up to something bigger than what they actually are. But it's it's interesting to pick out all of these little kind of storylines that are happening behind the scenes and I think it's just what makes him you know, one of the most interesting drivers in the series, but on, on and off the track because he's such a complex character and his actions are not always easy to explain. And he comes with a baggage of a, a big reputation from from Europe where, you know, people feel a certain way about him. And 
I think some people in in IndyCar have definitely taken that, and 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 they feel that that's justified because of the way he's raced them. But you know, I think um, a lot of these things are fifty fifty. A lot of the drivers in the field have upset other drivers in the field. Um, it's um, it's an interesting one, but I've just found his season really interesting so far. Yeah, and and I think I'll I'll just comment on a couple of things that you said, which and the the main one being, I think I think Roman just ends up standing out to drivers when he does something that is happening up and down up and down the field like i didn't i don't think anything that he did in the race that whether it was with joseph or with or even that pit lane exit with mclaughlin like i think if that had been somebody else that did the exact same thing it's not something that i think both of those drivers in those situations would have momentarily been pissed off about it or might have felt might have felt like they were on the wrong side of that or something it may have even come up after the race but I don't think we'd be talking about it in the same context. And and the fact that he was involved in both of those situations to me is just totally circumstantial. Like he's running up at the front with all of these guys. I mean, you know, if if Felix Rosenquist wasn't teammates with Alexander Rossi, you'd be talking about that. You know, their their battles being this huge thing that, you know, is is gonna develop into a, you know, rivalry among drivers that are both battling at the front of the race on different teams. So, you know, I we have kind of a weird a weird situation and and part of it is is due to uh you know the reputation that different drivers have and the relationships they have with the paddock and and all this kind of stuff so it's not like this comes from nowhere it's not it's, this is not um you know anybody uh you know we're not making all of this up out of thin air or something it's not like drivers just don't like Roman Grosjean or something but um i do think i i agree with you on the account that just you know, he's, if we just took what he's been doing at face value from, or sort of from scratch, like if we, if we decided there was no prior history or of anything in particular, I, I don't really think that we'd be having quite the, con- quite the same conversation about it because the reality of it is there's this kind of argy bargy, you know, BS happening up and down the field because the cars are wedged in a, you know, little, a tight space and the cars are fast and, that's just kind of is what it is. Like how many times did we almost have, I mean, I I was actually really impressed in this, in this event, how frequently accidents that would usually happen didn't because guys were actually giving each other a little bit of room and allowing, allowing each other to drive through corners too wide. And I think part of that is because you know, that as the driver, as the aggressor in those situations, you know, that the likelihood that you sticking that car in the wall ends up taking you out somehow also, because they're bouncing off the wall back into you and collecting your left rear before you can actually squeeze by. But, um, you know, I, I was pretty impressed, frankly, particularly given the tight quarters, um, at, how infrequently we had accidents that that very easily could have occurred, um, you know, particularly among the drivers that are up at the front. And, and I think that that's, you know, I mean, that that instance where um, the on the restart where Pillow got had some rear lockup and then Dixon got in the side of power and that created this huge, you know, I guess guys getting stuck in Andy stall and whatever that backed everybody up and. Rossi goes blowing by into that next corner, you know, the, the number of almost accidents that happened just on that one lap was kind of extraordinary, really. Like, and so the fact, I, I think there's not enough credit be given for when things don't happen basically. Um, and so I, 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 I'll just shout out kind of all the guys that were up at the front and you, know, you talked about Scott Dixon earlier i think the one thing that just always stands out to me and and he can appear a little um you know like he's not the most aggressive driver among the drivers that are up at the front but in situations like that the fact that he's got like eyes in the back of his head you know the the fact that he has such an incredible awareness for what's going on around him and uh, not not in the, you know in in i guess turn 4 into the next corner where you know he gets he's getting stuffed going into the corner and you know, just manages to keep it out of the wall on the exit and, you know, lives to fight another corner, another lap, another day. Um, you know, those are, those are the types of, uh, you know, like when he and he, and it reminds me of he and Polo at the start of the Portland race, you know, two years ago and in, in Alex's, uh, you know, championship run there, just 
the the ability for those guys to avoid disaster is not easy you know like that that all in and of itself is is quite a skill so i think there there is a lot to talk about the still still in this race but we'll sort of we'll we'll sort of jump through a few things one last thing that i want to bring up is um well before we get to the last thing that i want to bring up i want to just talk about pato for a second um and and only only because i just felt like you know the the contrast between the interview that he gave after he was out of the race he he obviously had you know the pit stop was not his fault he's taken out of the race at that point um but he had every opportunity to just say hi i'm pato award and i just fucked up like he had every chance to admit that ultimately he had done something that he could have avoided doing that took himself out of the race and didn't. Um, it, it it stood out in such stark contrast to like the interview that Graham Rahal gave and, you know, what you heard from a lot of other drivers over the course of the race. Um, I guess I just wanted to get your, as so as a driver that really stood out to me as, as, uh, as, as a non-driver, I guess, like, you know, what's your take on, Pato, his situation right now, you know, where is his head at? It made me think, oh, that's that's interesting that he just didn't take any accountability for this. Um, and that sort of made me think maybe there's more for, more for him to, you know, build upon to really be a true contender than sort of beats the eye. Because I guess to me, while, while that... You know, he obviously has all the he has all the requisite skills to go out and go win a championship just in terms of what he's doing in the car. But that stood out to me as as kind of a in a way a weakness that he's just not not taking responsibility for some of these things. I get it. You want the rally winning co-driver's opinion. That's that's the level of insight that you need. That's I've what got, I want. I've got right you back. Now, yeah. I've got you back. Don't worry. Yeah, I think um the even even the justification of the crash, which was like I, it was either the crash or go a lap down to Pelot was just totally bizarre to me. Like you're on a, you're on a street course where there's potential for like multiple yellows at the end of the race, which is, you know, what happened. Well, it just wasn't true. It was kind of like, okay, yeah, you've got to make that pass or you'll, or you might, but he had just gotten, he had just gotten around Pelot, I think. He was definitely so ahead of Polo entering the corner anyway. Like Pelot was behind. on the lead lap. Cause I think he had been behind Pelot. Yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, you, you've got to get around your, you know, we'll call it traffic in that situation. So, so that he, he, I think adequately described the scenario that he was in, but the crash or go home part of it is just not true. Yeah. Right. That's, like that's it wasn't the bit like, I didn't like, yeah. Get in an accident. It wasn't checkers or records at that point. It was like, I need to get by this guy and then stay ahead of Alex. Like, okay, that's fine. So that, that, that explains so he did a lot to explain the situation that he was in and how frustrating being in that situation was. But ultimately, none of that is justification for making a mistake and firing it into the wall that was totally on him. Like Santino just got the hell out of the way, you know, like so that that was the thing that I had issue with. Yeah, I could I could even forgive the mistake in, in the car more than how he reacted in the totally. aftermath. And maybe a bit of that is you know, we talk about this a lot, like having to speak about it immediately after it had just happened and maybe not having seen the video or not really having sat down for two minutes just to kind of gather your thoughts and work out, you know, exactly, exactly where you're at. Um, you know, maybe that's a, an element to it. And, and maybe another element to it is that part of his like mental makeup is that he just really struggles to admit to mistakes or that he feels like if he, if he admits to mistakes and that's going to make him like, maybe not like less of an athlete, but it's it's gonna question him as a as an athlete and as a performer and and that's gonna potentially impact his future performances and the and the not like kind of just saying yeah I messed up is is like an element of that um, but but even so you've got responsibility there as a as a driver and uh, as as a as a member of a team to just you know basically admit that you've made a mistake there really I think um, so so yeah that'd be my take on it it was the the mistake was. I didn't think he needed to crash at that point. Um, I can forgive the error, but not the 
really the response to it. I thought he could have handled that much better. Yeah, I think we're on the same page there. All right, so the last person I want to talk about in a much more positive light is our man, Augustine Canapino. Um, he he just altogether had like a very, you know, he had, he had his moments kind of here and there throughout the race and, you know, had some little penalties and, uh, you know, things like that. But um, he certainly looked like a, like an IndyCar driver here. So why I, I, what's your take on, on kind of his evolution and, um, you know, what do you, do you think that this is, it's always hard to, you know, pick one race out and say, oh, this is an indicator of, of anything in particular. We've got sort of a crazy race here just all together. But what did you make of his weekend altogether? I think the the big thing for me was that it's not it wasn't his best road or street course finish because that was St. Pete where he finished 12th at the start of the year. But the big thing for me was that just, just the general pace was just much better than at any other race this year. And I don't want to take anything away from him because the results he had at St. Pete and Texas were both born out of being a very sensible and calculated driver. And that's not an easy thing to do. There was people who finished behind him, obviously. Um, yeah, I was going to say, there's there's certainly nothing wrong with that, yeah, for sure. It's that, a, that's it's, a, a worthy skill and and sort of thing all, all in, its, uh, in and of itself. Absolutely. And I'd never take that away from him at all. But I think there were elements to those two races where if the drivers had have, if there'd have been other drivers who'd have stayed in the race, he would not have finished where he did. Um, that's just a fact of his pace. If you go back and look through what he was able to do in those races. And the difference here was that he was genuinely like wheel to wheel battling with Colton Herter and yeah, all right, he blocked him twice and that was something that he needs to work on. His his racecraft is definitely something that will improve when he's racing around those kind of people. Like you can't do those kind of things when you're racing against those kind of people. And it, that, that will become, you know, very obvious to him. I'm sure he'll know after the race what he's done and what he needs to work on from that perspective but just just fundamentally as a rookie he's just so impressive and we know he's got that background of being a champion in some very very good championships and and winning some very very good races that we don't know so much about but you have to take into consideration and and realize that that he's obviously a a very very good driver but the fact that he's come in here in his first season in in open wheel cars and been as impressive as he has and I think that the big thing that people don't really give him credit for is that he's coming into a team where they've they've expanded into a second season. They're still like they're still staffing that team up properly. I think you know I think they'd be the th- that team would be the first one to admit that they're not where they want to be in terms of how many people they have working for them and what you know having the people in the right place. So I think the the fact that we've seen other teams struggle so much to add a car. Uh, McLaren's a bad example because they've done it very well, but there's other teams in the field that have really struggled. Myshank's a good example of a team that have found it difficult expanding to to two cars. For Huncost to do it in their second full-time season and for Canapino to still be where he is, is really impressive. There's another couple of things that I think probably punctuate how impressive he's been, just, just speaking generally. And that's, if you look at, um, I, I've basically been keeping a rank of um, taking the driver's best in or out lap uh, from each race and then averaging that out. Um, so he's averaging 19th in terms of the field for uh, in laps and 23rd on out laps. Um, and if you consider there's, you know, there's there's 26 full-time guys in the field, um, the fact that he's not last in any of them is is pretty, you know, pretty cool. And I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the mentality at the team when he came in was that we just don't want to finish last. Like, whatever we're doing, we just don't want to be last. And he's been last twice in 33 race sessions this this year. So I guess if you put all that together, look at the performance he had last weekend, where for, for, for me, for the first time, apart from the 500, which is obviously an oval, in terms of road and street courses, that was the first time he really delivered at the level of the drivers around him and had that genuine pace where, you know, he was absolutely fine. I think the the one thing I've seen people criticising for has, has been the qualifying and that has been quite low. I think he's there's only two people behind him in terms of the full-time drivers, in terms of their average start. But the the key thing, the very, very key thing with that for me is that Callum Eilat absolutely excelled in qualifying at times last year. He was on the front row in Laguna Seca, but this year he's only averaging two spots ahead of Canapino in terms of qualifying. So to me, I'm turning that round. That's a massive positive for Canapino that he's only starting on average two spots lower than Callum Eilat. It doesn't matter how many people are behind him. I think you've got to go with your teammate in, in that scenario. We all know how impressive Callum is and he's, you know, being linked to pretty much every, apart from Penske, pretty much every top team out there and, and any team that would, you know, have a space. I think Callum will be in, in the, the conversation for in, in silly season and to, to be anywhere near him in qualifying is just another sign of how good he's been, I think. 
All right, JR, that was a busy race. I'm sure there's things we've missed out. We'll definitely try and get back to uh, a lot of those storylines if we can for the next pod. I just quickly wanted to get some thoughts on Road America because we're not going to have time to do a preview podcast, I don't think, ahead of the Road America race because some uh, selfish podcast host is going to get married and it's not going to be available. So um, the... the ah. road- <laughs> the, the Road America track's obviously been resurfaced. Um, what are you looking for ahead of that? I mean, the the track has said that they've kept all of the original kind of elements of the track, so we're not expecting anything to be like significantly different in terms of like turns or angles or anything like that. Um, I guess the carousel is something I'm just gen- like as a motorsport fan, I'm just generally excited about seeing how that works with the, the the pavement. But is there anything you can kind of give a bit of insight into the listeners in terms of what the drivers will be looking at going into that one and what might be some of the I know you've not like none of us know exactly how it's going to work because we've not seen a car on the track yet. But what, what are you kind of looking for? Yeah, I mean, it's it's typically higher grip when you have these kind of situations, but we won't really know that for sure until we see a car on track there. So, you know, we'll 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 kind of just have to wait and see if that's the case, then it actually makes in some ways it makes Road America even more interesting because there are already a lot of places on track that are very high risk in terms of if you just carry a little too much speed through a corner onto some very treacherous exit curbing like the the risk reward factor at Road America is as high as any other you know road course for sure that any car goes to um, you know there's just there's there's not a really usable runoff almost anywhere basically you know you've got it in a few places you've got a little bit of the exit of turn one you've got a little bit of the exit of Canada Corner and some places like this but even in those even in those areas to be able to get the car back onto the racing surface like it's it's not like it's not it's not extra track that you can rely on using really um and so it's it's just a little bit of extra road there in case you have something go horribly wrong kind of at the entry or 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 maybe at the middle of the corner but even by then you've you're carrying enough speed deep enough through the corner that you might not even really be able to use whatever extra road is there so um you know i i guess with the amount of you know, it's one of these places where beca- just because it's so fast, the cornering energies are rather high relative to other places that IndyCar goes. But the consequences of dropping a wheel or or being six inches off are the same or or more excessive uh, than anywhere else. So I guess I would say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I guess, just finding out what that dynamic is like you know does is is the fact that they repaved it does it there are some places you know where in the past you know especially in that final complex like canada corner through turn 13 into the last corner um coming onto the front straightaway that it's been quite bumpy and and that's made for sort of some of the difficulty factor uh in in a couple of sections of track maybe maybe some of that gets cleaned up a little bit you don't see quite as much of it um you know but the the big bogey is is just going to be yeah what's the track grip like and how does that change potentially depending on weather conditions and hot versus cold and you know a, a, a newly paved track often is just darker than darker than a you know track that isn't newly paved basically so you know does that create for a higher degree of temp- temperature sensitivity over the course of the weekend um, you know there's there's kind of all of these little things basically that you'll end up seeing and I guess the other part of it is with new pavement, it could end up changing what's required from a setup perspective just to kind of get maximum grip out of the tire by enough that you get a little bit of a shakeup in terms of who's who's good there. You know, we've we've been used to from a driver's perspective, you're used to seeing, you know, New Garden, Hurt has been really good there, Alexander Rossi's been really good there, um, you know, Dixon, Rosenquist have both had wins. You know, so you're sort of looking maybe initially at at those drivers of uh, you know, Pato and, and Polo have also had good runs here. So, you know, we're sort of just rattling off all the guys at the front of the field. But, you know, do we do you see dominance emerge from somebody who it's, you know, it's expected from? Or, you know, maybe do you see a team show up here that hasn't quite been in that form at Road America in the past, but maybe just because of the nature of their package, they... Uh, you know, has somehow have a leg up. So I think that'll, it'll be interesting just to see 
there'll be a lot of things that I'll be looking for just from first practice, basically, you know, what are, what are some trends that start to emerge at that point? I think we had three Ganassi wins before Penske won last year and with, with Joseph and the McLaren was so strong there last year that they could have easily also won it. So uh, I guess we've got the the kind of big three at the moment, at least um, all, all potentially in contention or with prior kind of pace at the, at the venues so that'll be interesting to see. And I think you mentioned Rossi in that um, he, he's someone I'm really looking forward to, to see. And he's a previous winner in, in 2019 at Road America and also has had three top fives and is kind of ghosted into the, the championship hunt in a way, because he's sixth and uh, ahead of a lot of those people who we talked about earlier, who are contenders. So uh, whether he can put a championship charge together in the second half of the season is going to be really interesting, whether he can replicate some of those um, runs that he used to go on when he was at Andretti, when he used to pop a few uh, wins and podiums together in a row. That'll be interesting to see. So we'll keep an eye on that. That's all for this week's The Race IndyCar podcast. You can go and check out thehyphenrace.com for features on a lot of the topics we've talked about here today and uh, a full race report from the race. If you want to catch up on what happened in Detroit, we'll also have some more features and stuff coming over in this little break. We've got a test next week uh, where a lot of the teams are heading to uh, to Barber and then they'll be heading to, to Road America after that. So we'll be back after the Road America race with another episode of The Race IndyCar podcast. The Athletic.